friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. I believe the Lord has led me right now to just briefly cut my series on the book of James. Anyway, we've completed chapter 2, and so next year we will go to chapter 3. But for today, I'd like to speak about prayer. And so I'd like you to please rise from your seats right now, and we will go topical for the next few Sundays. I'm going to do a two-part series on prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we see the moral landscape in our country beginning to change. There are certain things that are black that have now become white, and there are certain things right now that are being approved which you disapprove. And we are right now at a crossroads because the whole world is now turning in rebellion against you. The values of this world have become the opposite of the morality that you represent in the Scriptures. And we are terribly bothered because we know that it all begins with toleration, then it goes to approval. And then we know it will eventually end up in persecution. And those who are like-minded, just like us, who hold on to the Scriptures, will one day be persecuted. Times are becoming darker. And, Lord, we know that you have prophesied in the Scriptures that times will become worse and worse. And somehow we know this is part of the fulfillment of Scriptures. Lord, we pray that somehow you might turn the tide for our country. And we pray, Father, that you might create in our hearts a strong and powerful burden to really pray and seek your face. Lord, we ask, Lord, that we might take seriously your call upon us to become prayer warriors. And Lord, we submit everything to you this morning. I pray for myself that you might make me your mouthpiece, O God, that people might understand the call that you are placing upon us. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Tragedy of Neglecting Prayer. A lot of Christians nowadays fail to see the relevance of prayer, not only in their own lives, but even in the church. Sadly, nowadays, prayer meetings are not well attended. 
There is a remnant that still believes in the power of prayer. And I thank God for this remnant that takes the matter of prayer quite seriously. But I believe that to some people in church, they have already forgotten the relevance and the power of prayer. I'd like to bring before you a concern that I have in so far as our congregational prayer and fasting is concerned. I have observed for the past couple of years that people who have been attending our congregational prayer and fasting are people who are about 40 years old and above. And unfortunately, I no longer see young people, those who are 40 and below. And for me, this is a great concern because to those who belong to my age bracket, you and I know that our days are numbered. Our days are becoming shorter and shorter by the day. And young people know this, that during our congregational prayer and fasting, we pray for you. We pray for our country. We pray for our government leaders. We pray for the church, not only our church, but we pray for other churches as well. But we pray for you young people who are called as millennials. And my question to you young people is this. When we are gone, when those of us who belong to this age bracket are gone, who is going to pray? And you might say, well, when you're gone, that's when we will start praying. Let me tell you this. If you do not make a habit and a commitment of prayer right now, when we are gone, let me tell you, those prayer meetings will be empty. So I'm calling upon the young people of this church, and I'm laying upon you a burden to take this matter seriously. Because the world that you are living in right now will pose certain challenges, and there will be certain issues that will actually be daunting and even overwhelming. And when you and I will not be able to turn the tide, the moral tide that is now taking place in our country, you will suffer most of all. Because that is the world that you will be enduring. That is the world that you will be living in. And not only that, that includes your children. Your children will wake up to a world of twisted values. As I mentioned, my prayer, it starts with tolerance. And then from tolerance, it is approval. And then from approval, it turns to rejection of the values that we hold dearly from the Scriptures. And after that comes terrible persecution. That is how it works in this world. Demonic forces are at work in this country. And the Bible makes it clear to us 
that the battle we are facing is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, and principalities. So if you and I are thinking of using carnal and fleshly weapons to defeat the enemy, I'd like to tell you we're already defeated. The Bible clearly states that the weapons that we use are not carnal and they are not fleshly, but they are spiritual, powerful, the Bible says, to pull down strongholds. And sometimes we have forgotten the power of prayer. We have forgotten who our God is, that the world that we now see, the creation that we now see was created by an almighty and all-powerful God who knows no limits, to whom there is nothing difficult and nothing is impossible. And yet, sadly, we have taken things for granted. We have held on to the, our faith in the sovereignty and in the providence of God, but to the neglect of our own spiritual duties and commitment. We are now waking up to a world that is darker. And I would like to submit to you that to a certain extent, it is our own fault because we have not taken the matter of prayer quite seriously. And friends, this is the challenge for a lot of us. Sadly, even pastors seem not to care about the matter of prayer. Some years ago, I got hold of statistics that basically states that pastors spend on the average only five minutes of prayer every day. Think about that. Pastors spend only five minutes of prayer every day. Now, if pastors are unable to model a life of prayer, they cannot expect those who are under them, those who are following them, to go beyond where they have not been. So if they have not been committed in prayer, if they have not been dedicated to prayer, then we cannot expect the congregation to actually get themselves to pray, bend their knees, and seek the face and the might and the power of God. The sad, this sad spiritual state is a far cry from what the early church had modeled. At the time when the early church was being threatened by a great divide between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, the apostles stood pat on their priorities. They understood very clearly what their role and what their priorities were. And I would like to be able to review to you Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 at this time. If you would like to, please open your Bibles. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, this was not good, of course, because obviously everybody has to be treated equally. Now, we do not know if 
This was something intentional or unintentional. Nevertheless, this was a really very big problem. So here's what happened in verse 2. It goes, So the twelve summoned the congregation and the of the disciples rather and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Because obviously the proposition was, he was they were saying that the apostles needed to be hands-on when it came to the distribution of the meals. And of course, I think the apostles were more than willing to do that. They had a servant's heart. But here's the problem. If they actually followed that proposal, that would now remove them from their top priorities as apostles and teachers of God's Word. And the consequence of that would be a negative effect on the spiritual health and the spiritual welfare of the congregation. So that was what was at risk at that time. And so the apostles were thinking, we cannot do that. Because if we do this, then we will put the spiritual health of the church at risk. So here was what they proposed as a counter-proposal in verse 3 and 4. It goes, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Notice, they understood their priorities. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, they were not being lazy. They were not having a prima donna attitude. They didn't want to set themselves over and above the congregation. They just understood what was it that would benefit the congregation the most. And they believed that if they studied the Word of God and concentrated and in preaching the Word of God, and if they devoted themselves to prayer, the church would greatly grow. And we find the testimony actually as we continue reading Acts chapter 6, the church continued to grow not only in number, they grew in quality as well. And that's exactly what we want to happen. Now, the biblical, this biblical philosophy of ministry that the twelve held to, on to was that prayer and the Word were their top priorities. Sadly, these two things are no longer given the proper attention and devotion that is needed for the church to create a powerful impact in society. I cannot help but refer back to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, who in London was used mightily of God. At the time when there were still no mega churches, he was already a mega church. Thousands of people attended his church. Numbers say that there were 10,000. Sometimes they would say there would be 15,000 people attending his church. And you would like to believe, of course, that he was gifted, and that is true. He was gifted. He was eloquent. He had a brilliant mind. He never went through Bible seminary, by the way. He was self-taught. He taught himself. He studied the Scriptures. He studied Greek. He studied the Bible. And some of the works 
that he has done, some of his sermons are still being studied by a lot of Bible scholars even up to today. And they are very sound, very grounded in the Scriptures. Now, friends, you know what the secret of this man was? The secret of this man was that every time he preached, there were 200 people at the basement of Dirt Church building who were praying and interceding that as Charles Haddon was preaching, he would preach in a powerful way. And to be honest, in my heart, you know, I have this godly envy. In my heart, I wish that there would be a number of people who would commit themselves to pray even as I am preaching. Because I understand nothing of what I do and nothing of what I say is ever going to bring about any true and lasting change in the lives of people. You might nod your heads when I tell you a very beautiful story or a very beautiful testimony. You might nod your heads as I affirm the values of the Scriptures. But the question remains, is it powerful enough to create a change in our lives? Would it make us more committed to the values of the Scriptures? Would it cause us to be passionate with the Word of God, to study it, to dig deep into the Scriptures and know more about it? Would it cause us to be passionate for uh, bringing lost souls into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Would my preaching be powerful enough to be able to convince us that Christ should be our first priority, our first love? Those are the questions that run through my mind. Every single Sunday, is my preaching powerful enough to be able to convict the people, to instruct the people, so that when Monday comes, they are an entirely different people empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself held on to this philosophy of ministry. And this is the reason why He got outraged at the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem for failing to see what the temple stood for. The temple stood for prayer. And this is what we will be talking about today as we look into three things. First up, we will talk about the temple's purpose, which is prayer. Likewise, we will take a look at the kinds of unrighteous prayers that the Jews prayed in other places as well as in the temple. And then we will take a look at the consequence of neglecting prayer. And I tell you, the consequences are quite costly. So allow me to begin with the temple's purpose, and let's start off with a story in Matthew 21, verses 12 to 13 at this time. And here's what we are told in verses 12 to 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. 
Now, what was happening here? I mean, some people upon reading this passage actually get scandalized at Jesus' display of anger, unable to understand this kind of a reaction. A lot of people actually get offended and even stumble at this kind of a reaction. And the question is asked, did Jesus do the right thing here? of driving out, overturning the tables and driving out all these vendors for, after all, they just wanted to make a living by selling some things in the temple. Was Jesus right in doing that? So it needs further study and an actual study of the background that will make us appreciate what was happening here. As you very well know, we just came from uh, Israel, and at that time, uh, they, they were divided into several regions. One was called the Galilean region, which was up north, and there was also the Judean region. There was also the Decapolis. And so the Jews were scattered all over, and once a year, they were supposed to go to Jerusalem. Now, those coming from the north would take several days' journey to be able to reach the temple. Now, obviously, because of the difficulty of the logistics of that day, remember, they did not have cars, they did not have buses, and so what they did was perhaps ride on donkeys, ride on camels, and it took them several days to be able to reach Jerusalem. And when they reached the temple, they were supposed to make sacrifices and offerings. Of course, because there were a lot of them coming from different parts of the Middle East, different parts of Israel at that time, many of them would decide not to bring with them animal sacrifices or offerings. Instead, what they would do is the moment they reach the temple, that is the time when they would buy these sacrifices and offerings. Quite interestingly, as we were serving the Western Wall, our Israeli guide, Moti, said that this portion here where you find some ruins used to be stores in the temple. And something just rang a bell in my mind. So I asked him the question, is it possible these were the places where the vendors were selling something like offerings and sacrifices? And he said, well, that's quite possible. And it is really possible that that would be the exact location where these offerings and sacrifices were done because it was near the entrance uh, going to the Temple Mount. And so I could just imagine and picture in my mind what the Lord Jesus did at that time. So the question is, what was wrong here? What was wrong with, after all, as they were selling these offerings and sacrifices, they were making things easy for the people who were coming from the Galilean region or from the Decapolis. They were making things easy for them. Here's the problem. They were selling these offerings and sacrifices at an exorbitant price such that only the wealthy, only the rich, only the well-to-do people could afford buying those offerings and sacrifices. So where does that leave the poor people? 
Now, obviously, the poor people would dig deep into their pockets and they would discover that they would not have enough money to be able to buy those offerings or sacrifices. Maybe that would cause them to make a loan with probably one of the relatives in Jerusalem. But it was making it extremely difficult for these poor people to make an offering and a sacrifice at the temple. And it was their divine duty to make those offerings and sacrifices because it provided atonement for their own sins. Only then could they now approach God and pray to Him as their sins have been forgiven. So what were these vendors doing? They were actually hindering, they were impeding these poor people from fulfilling their spiritual duties and obligation to worship God, to have atonement for their sins, and even to pray. And this caused Jesus Christ to be angry. His wrath was poured out upon these vendors because they were stopping the people of God from worshiping and praying. And that caused them, that caused Jesus Christ to drive them out from the temple. And rightly so, they deserved that treatment from the Son of God. And in this particular passage, Jesus succinctly tells us and points out one of the major purposes of the temple, aside from its being a place of atonement, providing uh, covering for the sins of those who have offended God. Jesus declares that this temple was to be a house of prayer. Look at what Jesus says in verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a robber's den. And as we reflect on this, shouldn't we understand that what Jesus is implying here is that all those who have a connection with Yahweh, all those who have a covenant relationship with God should take the matter of prayer seriously. If we are to be described as Christians, we are supposed to be described as a house of prayer. So the question now arises to each and every one of us, if we could be described, could we be described as a house of prayer, both individually and as a congregation? Because herein lies something which is so powerful that, friends, if we neglect it, there are very serious consequences that we need to pay for. And this is the reason why I feel that the Holy Spirit has given me this particular message because there is now a sense of urgency as we now survey the moral, political, and spiritual landscape of our own country. Friends, things need to change. You and I, we all want change. Every time elections come, what do we want? We want changes taking place. And yet, isn't it quite frustrating that election after election, official after official, things have not changed for the better. Sometimes it has even gotten worse. 
And perhaps our problem is that we are relying too much on people. We are relying too much on flesh rather than relying on God who is really able to institute changes in any country. God in His power, as the book of Proverbs says, is even so powerful to be able to change the hearts of kings. Like channels of water, God is capable of doing that. And yet, in the equation of things, we have put God on the sidelines. He is not at the center. And things are becoming darker by the day. If the Sogi bill is passed, I just know where this is heading. And the possibility is, as, happened, as it happened in the United States, remember, Somebody went to jail because he or she refused to bake a cake for gay couples who were about to get married. Friends, let me tell you what might happen if this bill gets approved. When I preach against homosexuality, when I preach against the LGBT community, I could go to jail. And I'm willing. I am willing to go to prison if that has to happen. I cannot compromise the Word of God. If it means that I go to jail because of my principles, because of what the Word of God preaches, then so be it. But the bill hasn't been passed yet. And we have the grand opportunity to turn this tide around to turn things around because our God is almighty and all-powerful. This world was created by His breath and by His Word. That is how powerful and mighty our God is. Have we forgotten how powerful and how almighty our God is? Have we forgotten that He is the God of miracles? Have we forgotten that He divided the, the Red Sea for the Israelites to be able to cross through dry land? Have we forgotten that He was the one who conquered the giants in the Middle East so that Israel could have a land that belonged to them, a land flowing with milk and honey? Have we forgotten that He changed the landscape in Europe, particularly in Britain, who was on the verge of a civil war. And yet because of a mighty revival that took place when God used George Whitfield and John Wesley, that country became united again. And they experienced such a mighty revival, it is still being talked about up to today. Have we forgotten the God who heals us from our diseases? Have we forgotten the God who provides food for us on the table? Have we forgotten the God who delivered and saved us, who died on the cross and paid the penalty of our sins so that now we enjoy access into the very throne of God? When King Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, he had the same thing in mind. 
When he dedicated the temple, he prayed this prayer found in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, beginning at verses 18 to 21. It says, But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Sometimes we think the universe is infinite with its billions of galaxies, and we think the universe is infinite. No, it is not. As vast and as unimaginable is the size of the universe that we have. Friends, let me tell you, the Bible declares that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. The universe is not infinite. God is. Amen? He is bigger than this universe that we see. He is bigger than this universe that you and I live in. That is how big our God is. And so Solomon understood that. And he says, how much less this house which I have built. Yet notice what he says. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you. That your eye may be open toward this house day and night. Toward the place of which you have said that you would put your name there. To listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place from heaven. Hear and forgive. So very clear in the mind of Solomon was one of the purposes of the temple. It was to be a house of prayer. That was the intention of God the Father after all. And Jesus Christ knew exactly what this temple represented. It not only represented a place where atonement would be provided, but here is a place wherein the people of God can commune with the Lord, be intimate with Him, have fellowship with Him, and at the same time bring before the Lord their own personal petitions, their, their prayer requests for the nation, their prayers for their families, so that they would continue on in this covenant relationship that they had with God. And sadly, during the time of Herod the Great, the temple had degenerated into a place of hypocrisy, in a place where people were exploited for the sake of material gain. Prayer was no longer a priority to the Jewish people. In fact, the prayers that were prayed in the temple, if ever they were praying, were even unrighteous prayers. Let me give you a sample of some of the prayers that they prayed. I, I will just mention three. There may be more. But let's take a look at the kinds of unrighteous prayers that the Jews prayed. First would be meaningless repetitions. Some prayers that were prayed were meaningless repetitions that hit the ceiling and fell back to the ground. It had no effect. And Jesus chided the Jews for praying this type of prayer. Look at Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, please. 
And what does it say here in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8? It says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. They were relying on the length of their prayers. They were relying on the many words that they were speaking before God. And some of these prayers were actually passed on to them and were given to them probably as a matter of oral tradition. And they were praying them, but they were praying them not from the heart. Listen up. When we pray, God doesn't listen to the words that come out of our mouth. The only time God listens to the words of our mouth is if it is the expression of our hearts if there is really earnestness, if there is really honesty before God, devotion towards God, God is seeking for people who are desperate for Him, who desperately seek Him and desperately pray to Him. Again, let me quote what the psalmist said, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for Thee. What has been given to the people of Israel by the United Nations is about 65% desert. The Negev is about 65% desert. And so if you really think about it, only about 35 to 40% is really livable habitation. You can just imagine the kind of plight not only that confronts people but even animals like deers. And the psalmist exactly knew the threats in that kind of a territory, which is not really a merciful territory. The deer continually seeks for uh, pools of water that he might drink. And at times, the deer might have to travel long distances just to be able to find water. And the psalmist is saying, this is the kind of desperation I have, O God, for you. As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants after thee. You and I know what happens when an animal or even a human being gets dehydrated. You could die of a heat stroke. You could die of dehydration. I recall we had a small puppy before, a poodle which my children loved, and they called, they called him Scotty. And um, we loved that dog dearly, but our maid made a mistake of locking him out of the gate. And so we did not know that Scotty was out, and uh, it was a long day, very dry and very hot, and so when we went to the gate and opened the gate, we were surprised. Scotty was there at the gate, dead. Obviously, this dog wanted to get in because he wanted some drink. But because the gate was locked, he died there at the gate. Obviously, that pained us, that pained our children. But that's the kind of thing that happens when you don't have water. My question to you is, are 
you desperate? Are you desperate for God? So desperate that you know that your life depends on Him. He is the one that you cling on to. He is the one that you depend on. He is your sufficiency. He is your adequacy. He is your stronghold. He is the rock and the fortress of your life. I recall again in Israel, when they say, you are my rock, they were not talking about small rocks. In one of the Psalms, it says, you have planted my feet on the rock. I mean, can you imagine a small rock and you plant your feet on a small rock? What do you think is going to happen to you? No, the rock that they were talking about was a huge mountain like Masada, which took a year or so or a couple of years before the Roman Empire, the Roman soldiers were able to, to enter that because they had to come up with a ramp. They built a ramp all the way to Masada. But when the ramp was not built, the people were safe. God is our rock. Amen? He is our rock, and He is mighty, and He is powerful. And that's the reason why we have to pray. That's why I notice what verse 8 says. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And some of us would be smart, Alex, and we would say, well, if God knows exactly what I need, why doesn't He just give it to me? After all, He knows I need it. Well, here is where we find one of the rules of the kingdom. One of the rules of the kingdom is you need to ask. James says, you receive not because you ask not. So the rule of the king is this. If you want something from him, you need to ask. If there are certain things that you require and you need for your family, you need for your church, you need for your business, the rule in the kingdom is you ask the king. And the king that we have is a generous king. He is a loving king. He is a king who just cares for us. He, in fact, he is a servant king. I'm just reminded of when Jesus was resurrected and, and the disciples went back to fishing. And, and when they went ashore, guess what this king did? In his post-resurrection state, he could have said, well, you know what? I'm king right now. That part of my life where I'm supposed to be suffering Messiah, that's done. I'm now glorified and resurrected. I'm king. Bow before me. You know what Jesus did? He prepared breakfast for the disciples. He served them one by one. That's the king that you and I serve. Amen? He is a servant king. Hallelujah. Next up, another kind of prayer that was being prayed at that time is what I call showboating prayer. Wherein they were showboating their spirituality, which Jesus also pointed out in Matthew 6, verse 5. Let me just read this for you. It says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, the last statement that you find here is actually sarcasm. Jesus was being sarcastic to them, and what he was really saying is, well, you know what? When you were praying, you weren't really asking from me. You weren't really asking from the Father. All you wanted was to be noticed. All you wanted was to be admired by people so that people could say how spiritual and how holy you are. Well, if that is what you're seeking for, that's your reward. Don't expect God the Father to answer your prayers. Don't expect God to give you anything else because after all, that's what you wanted. You wanted admiration, so you have it. There was really sarcasm in this. And friends, sadly, this was one of the types of prayers that were being prayed at the temple. And then finally, you have self-glorifying prayers. There were pray prayers wherein they were seeking to glorify themselves before God and before men. Look at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Look at what it says here. Luke 18, 9 reads, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. You know, this is exactly the spirit of prayer. Because the spirit of prayer is you don't trust yourself, you trust God. That's why, in truth, this person was, wasn't really praying. It says, and he also said, and told this parable to some people who trusted in, in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I don't know if he was praying in his mind or he was muttering or whispering just so this tax collector could listen to what he was saying. We don't know. But the spiritual pride here is really terrible. You know what he was praying about? He was saying, Lord, admire me. Look at me, Lord, how, how beautiful I am, how, how wonderful a person I am. Lord, don't you agree? Look, don't you agree? I do such great things, Lord. Do you ever pray like that? Lord, thank you that I'm so great. Thank you, Lord, that... I'm so successful. I'm not like other people, Lord. Do you pray that way? This was how the Pharisee was praying. And then he begins to give a list of some of the things that he does. He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Lord, this is me. I fast. I, I sacrifice for you. Haven't you noticed, Lord? I tithe. Lord, I always give you what, what you require. I'm not like other people who shortchange you. I'm, I'm a tither, Lord. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this man who was beating his chest, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself 
will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This kind of prayer is adverse to the spirit of prayer. This kind of a prayer of the Pharisee is adverse to the spirit of prayer, which should exude humility and not pride. So think about this. Jesus was taking a look at the spiritual landscape of Israel at that time, and he was terribly disappointed. The temple was in disarray because of the wrong values that were taking place at that time. The people themselves had displaced themselves from true spirituality, and Jesus was seeing all of that. And when that happens, there's a consequence. And this is where we go. These were the kinds of prayers that were being prayed by the nation of Israel at that time. And so it is no wonder that it was not producing the fruit that would have caused God's kingdom to be established in Israel during the first coming of Jesus Christ. The herald John the Baptist was sent and he was announcing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ appears in the scene. He gets baptized by John the Baptist, thereby identifying himself with the same message that John the Baptist was preaching. And later on, we find him preaching the same message that John the Baptist was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, why was Jesus saying that? Because the king was present. Jesus was there. He was the king of Israel. And because the king was present, the kingdom was about to break into the nation of Israel. Think about what could have happened. If only, if only the nation of Israel was prepared. Think about what could have happened if they declared that Jesus indeed is the promised Messiah and King. Instead, they said, away with Him, crucify Him. They rejected Christ. And we ask ourselves the question, why? Remember this, there was no preacher. There is no preacher who will excel Jesus Christ. He is the best preacher this world has ever known. His authority is supreme. His preaching is impeccable. His preaching was without error, without any flaw whatsoever. Every word that Jesus spoke was meaningful, including the jots and the titles, the periods and the commas. Everything that he said was meaningful and powerful. And yet, even with all the miracles, the signs and wonders, they only saw an ordinary carpenter. Even a deceiver. And the question is, why? As I will show to you and amplify this to you next weekend, you and I will be able to see that the reason why they failed to see the Messiah was because their hearts were not prepared. 
and their hearts were not prepared because they were not a house of prayer. Let me say it again. The reason why they rejected the Messiah was because their hearts were not prepared and their hearts were not prepared because they failed to pray as they should have. Faith was definitely lacking in their prayers. So Jesus makes this sad commentary in Matthew 23. Look at Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. There's the problem. The kingdom is, is at hand. The king is present. And all it needed was for the subjects to say, we bow to your kingship. We bow to your rulership. All that was needed was for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. That was the only missing ingredient in that recipe. Jesus wept. And when Jesus was carrying his cross, there were some women who were weeping, greatly affected emotionally because of the way the face of Jesus Christ had been battered, blood just spilling out of his face with a crown of thorns, with welts, bruises, blood, his back, the flesh of his back torn apart by all the flogging. He was a picture of red. And these women were weeping. And Jesus said, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to them, first, the temple would be destroyed. That happened in 70 A.D. And from that time on, things have turned from bad to worse. Six million Jews massacred, Nazi Holocaust. They were brought by trains into a place, and they thought they were, go they were merely going to be transferred to different places. Some of them were, you could see the pictures, some of them were wearing suits. Some of them were wearing nice hats. The ladies were really dressed to kill. Nice bags, fancy clothes, children wearing suits as well, because they thought they were just going to be transferred to another place only to be stripped naked, thrown into the gas chambers, or shot and thrown into a common pit. Our Israeli 
tour guide became very emotional. He, when he talks about Israel, when he talks about the sufferings of his people, he can't help but cry. Always as a handkerchief. And sometimes he talks to us and he speaks about the sad plight that they have been and he walks away and then he wipes his eyes. And he always asks this question, why is everybody against us? This land that we have, it's so tiny, he says. 65% desert. And what do they want from us, he says. Sometimes he says it is mentally exhausting. He says it's not like we think about this every day, but it's something that confronts us every now and then. Right now, at the Syrian border, you have Iran, you have Turkey, you have Russia. It's quite interesting if you study biblical prophecy, study Ezekiel 38 and 39, and you will discover that we are on the verge of a pre-war before the tribulation period. This is not a war that will happen in the tribulation period. This is a war that will take place before the tribulation. And all of these players, of course, if you take a look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, you don't find the name Russia there, but you will find Rosh. That's the ancient name of Russia. Then you will find the name, you will not find the name Iran, but you will find the name Persia. And all the other countries there represented are countries that are found in Turkey. So it's quite interesting, they're right there. Now, will they ever be dispersed again? I don't think so. They will be preserved by God. But until they recognize their Messiah, they will continue to suffer. My heart goes out to them. More so because without a biblical perspective, without an understanding of the covenant of law, you will even question God Himself. And I believe this is the reason why many Jews are atheists. Many of them are atheists. For the simple reason, they're probably thinking, what in the world have we done to deserve this? But if only they read their Bibles, they would understand. Again, let me point out to you, where did it all begin? It all began because the temple was no longer a house of prayer. Now here's what I would like to call you into. I am praying that you will take this to heart, that you will make a commitment to be a prayer warrior. Young people, millennials, I'm talking to you right now. Flood our prayer meetings with your presence. 
Because when we're long gone, you will wake up to a world that is more dangerous than it is right now. You might wake up into a world where pastors will be persecuted and will have to go to jail because of their faith and their belief. Remember this, history always repeats itself. What has happened in the past will happen again. It might take a different form, but sinful human nature never changes. And how do we do battle? Not with carnal weapons, but with spiritual weapons. And one of them is prayer. I pray to God this message becomes a clarion call to us, all of us, but most especially to you young people. I have grandchildren, three now, another one coming up. I will have four very soon. I fear for them. I honestly, seriously fear for them. Because the world that they will be living in is going to be far different, far, far different from the world that we are now in. So friends, let's take this matter seriously. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes at this time? Our Father, we, we thank You. We thank You for this morning. We thank You for the Word of God. We thank You, Lord, for Jesus. And we thank You for the Scriptures. And Lord, please shed abroad the light of Your Word into our hearts and turn it into conviction. And may that conviction be a resolution and likewise a determination to take matters seriously. Lord, you have called us to pray and pray we should. Father, teach us not to be lazy. Teach us not, Lord, to, to take things for granted, to neglect our spiritual duties and to be like the nation of Israel who after so many years, thousands of years have elapsed they continue to suffer. And right now, there is a call for intifada right now. And there is a rage that is now growing by the day against the nation. They suffer. They continue to fear. They continue to worry. Lord, we need to learn our lessons. And we pray, Father, that you might be merciful to us, that we might truly abide in you as you abide in us. We give you thanks and praise for this morning. We thank you also that we could give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. Whatever is going to be achieved, 
or whatever has been achieved. We give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.